this morning. I spent some time with a, uh, not really a new Christian, but a Christian that's really wanting uh, to draw closer to the Lord this week and just had some com- conversation about the importance of Sunday morning, the importance of gathering together, the, the importance of sequestering ourselves and trying to tune out all the distractions and, and attempt to come before the Lord in praise and worship and then to hear a word from the Lord. And, you know, I, I always try to be very careful on Sunday morning that the, that the teaching is not ludicrous or the teaching is not boring, but the, the teaching is applicable to where we're at, to what we're, to what we're doing. I believe that God has stuff for us today, and I believe that um, if you were just to have the opportunity to speak to a congregation on Sunday morning, what, what would you say to that congregation? Would you talk about theology, or would you talk about semantics, or what, what, would, you, what would you share? You would like to think that you would share what God has for those that are there knowing who's going to be there, knowing who's not going to be there, knowing the challenges that we're going to face tomorrow. And so today I'd like this teaching to be applicable to areas that we may encounter in the next few days, and I hope this message is a blessing to you. Uh, Just want to say a special thank you for your finances, your trust and confidence in this ministry. Most of you know my pastor of 20-some-odd years passed away two years ago, Dr. David Bishop. And Pastor Ron and I have kind of come under the covering of Pastor Mike Hayes in Dallas. We love him. We spent time with him. His daughter came to our church four years that she was at Lee, so we're connected there. But listening to some of the things that he was sharing about some of the tithe and offering, the things that were taking place, they had a special service, a special mission service, and the majority of the gifts or the offerings was on a debit or a credit card and, uh, and he was not sharing this to scold the body or correct the body, but just to thank the body. About half of those transactions, those debits and, and credit cards, were returned unpaid. And he was saying to the congregation, I see that you see the need to respond and to bless and to help. But he said, I am aware of where we're at financially, and I'll try to share something according that will be a blessing in that area. And I, I want to thank you for going out of your way you know, if there, were, if there were thousands of people in this building, probably the, uh, the cost would still be great. Uh, I'm not sharing anything private or public, but uh, in, in, in uh, Perry's magazine this month, he said that the giving was off $800,000 this past 2012. And I think all of us can relate to tough times. I think all of us can relate to promises in God's word to be prosperous. I think prosperity is a, is a season that you develop into. I know one of the first areas of our life 20 years ago in prosperity was that we removed our house payment. And then I remember a few years ago, we paid off all of our credit cards. And so prosperity is a journey that you take. And I thank God for where we're at and even more for where we're heading. And I believe that God gives us the ability to change our own destiny, change our own future, determined upon the size of our heart. And the word said that one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to thank us for bringing groceries to the hungry, for providing clothes to those that are not so fortunate in clothing, and to visit those that are in prison. This house is represented by two prison ministries that we have two that go to the jails every Tuesday of the week and minister, and they're tied into us, and we thank God for that opportunity. Those of you that are writing those, maybe you have a loved one in prison or someone in trouble, you're ministering to those. When we stand before God, those are the things that we will be held accountable for, 
And I'm pleased to tell you that we're doing everything we can for the kingdom of God with every dollar you give to be wise, to be faithful, and to produce what God is saying and what God is doing. This morning, just for a few minutes, I would like to take a thought or a theme kind of entitled Killing Giants, Killing Giants from Within and from Without. Let me swallow this gum, then we'll be fine. Good. I'll at least live seven years because it takes that long for a piece of gum to digest, I've been told. So, give me another piece and I'll live to be 14 years. That will, that will kind of parallel with the message uh, this morning. There are, and again, trying to, trying to apply something this morning that will help you, that will encourage you, that will bless you. I believe that every single one of us today, regardless of how young or how old we are, I believe that there are, there are giants in our life that we are dealing with. Uh, whether they are giants from within, those things on the inside of us that seem to overwhelm us and frustrate us, or those giants that are from without, that we can see them, we can see those giants out there. And as we kind of look at the two types of giants, I want to look at two types of, of warfare today. I want to look at a guy that had a giant, obviously, on the inside of him, some character flaws, some frustrations in life, in marriage, in ministry, in children. And then I want to talk about one of the most famous, popular stories in the Bible, and that's the story of David and Goliath, whose David's giant was at a distance, and David chose to, to, to go after and to chase his giant. I believe that every one of us this morning have been given the spiritual DNA to be able to be a giant killer. Come on. Let me say that again. I believe that every one of us today have the ability, this, the DNA of God, to be a giant killer. I remember when the people of God wanted to take the land of promise, they sent 12 spies. You know the story. Ten came back with a report that the giants were too big to hit. Two came back with a report that the giants were too big to miss. All about attitude and all about where you are in the kingdom of God and what you know what God is saying and what God is wanting to do. In Numbers 13 and 33, the ten guys that were intimidated by the giants made this statement, and there we saw the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we, gra so were we grasshoppers in our enemy's eyes. But when God got ready to select somebody to defeat a giant, he told Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16 and 7, God tells Samuel, do not look at appearance or physical statue, for the Lord does not seek for the Lord does not see as the Lord sees for the man that looketh on the outward appearance and the Lord looks on the heart. So what God is saying to Samuel, do not be motivated by how handsome or unhandsome. Don't be motivated by how tall or, or how short. Don't be motivated by how wealthy or how not so wealthy. Because the way that we judge character and we judge purpose and destiny, God does not judge by the outside, but God judges by the inside. And God is trying to set up a scenario that a giant killer can come forth from the house of Jesse. And we know the story that Samuel went to Jesse's house. And if you'll read that passage of scripture, the elders of the city in Jesse's town or, or that franchise, the elders of the city, were terrified. Because the man of God had such a reputation 
of walking in authority and power. And a delegate went to greet him and say, do you come in peace? You come in terror. And he said, I come in peace. Aren't you glad that the word of God, the man of God comes in peace today? Aren't you glad for that? And Samuel said, I am here to choose the next king of Israel. We know that Israel did not have a king. God was their king. They, they, they won every battle. They defeated every enemy. But they wanted a king like everybody else. You know, Saul was chosen because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. But Saul had got to a place in his life where he allowed his posture or his position disqualify him. He stopped listening to the man of God, made decisions on his own. And God said, I can't have that. When, when, the, when, the, when the godly rule, righteousness, is tasty, but when the wicked rule, all we have is trouble and challenge. Can anybody relate? And so God decides to choose another king. God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And as, as you know the story, Jesse brings out all of his sons. And as Samuel looked at the oldest son, he had muscles, he was tall, he was good-looking. But, but God told Samuel, don't choose him. You're looking at the outside. I'm looking at the inside. And so every one of Jesse's seven sons come, and they stand before the man of God. And God says, no, this, this is not the one. This is not the one. So Samuel, perplexed because he knows he heard from God. How many can relate? Seems in your life where you know you've heard from God, and you go to operate in what you've heard, and it seems like it kind of falls flat, or, or there's just something lacking, something missing, something's not there. See, all these men had talent, but had not yet nurtured their character. Your talent will take you to the top. Your character will keep you there. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and says, do, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, uh, duh, the baby, David, he's out taking care of the sheep. So we'll bring David. He knows the story. God anoints David. And the word says from that day forward, David was anointed. But how frustrating to be called from the field into the house, celebrated as a son that's been called to be the king of Israel, and to go right back to sheep dung, hello, and feeding the sheep, taking care of the sheep. How boring, how frustrating that must have been. But I'm going to tell you what David did when he was taking care of the father's sheep. Sheep are boring. There's not really a whole lot required. You, you lead them to food, you lead them to water, you put them in a shelter, you watch over, over them at night. So David had a lot of spare time on his hands. So what David did with that spare time was he perfected the harp and he perfected the slingshot. Two things. His, his ministry of worship, his ministry of battle, hours and hours and hours. There's no telling how many, how many stones he would sling at the target. But the Bible says that the, the army of Israel had 400,000 inf infantrymen and they had 700 slingshot guys. And these, these 700 from the house of Benjamin, and they were left-handed. And I don't know how being left-handed has anything to do with maybe a certain way that the stone was thrown or maybe a, a better way or a different way. But David knew how to sling a stone. We know that David had the ability at 100 paces to split a hair. That's how accurate these slingshots were. And they would send the slingshotters, would you like that, to battle, and they would take, pick out the enemy one by one without a sword, without a spear, without a javelin. They did it with a rock. And I'm so reminded of the stone that the builder rejected, the rock of ages that's cleft for us, that our hope is built upon that rock, and we can do anything with that rock in our hand. Can anybody relate to that? God, God does not see the size nor the threat, nor the intentions of the enemy against you. God does not see that. 
Because God knows that you have in you the DNA to be a giant killer. Paul said it so well. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In the book of Psalms, you'll find reference to God's, God's, God's weapons. And we are called the weapons of God. We have been called to go in and to take back what the enemy has stolen. Can anybody relate some things that have been stolen us that we would like to see restoration and we would like to see healing? So God does not, God does not see our giants the way that we see them. But God knows what we're made of. God knows what we can do when we turn things around and give it to him and what we can become. So this morning for a few minutes, Alex, I'd just like to talk about the giants within us. What are some of the giants within us? I, I made a few notes. Maybe your giant is addiction. Maybe your giant is behavior. Maybe your giant is your thought pattern. Maybe your giant is an enemy. Maybe your giant is unforgiveness. Maybe your giant is you make bad choices all the time. Maybe your giant is you're walking in poverty or you seem to be plagued by sickness or bad luck. What was the guy that said, if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all? Maybe you just feel like that everything you touch just seems to go crazy. Your car breaks down, you tow it, you get it fixed, it breaks down again. I know nobody can relate to that. But last week, the, the timing chain fell off the Lexus. Don't ask me how the timing chain fell off the Lexus. Pastor Rhonda wasn't jumping anything. She wasn't going at intense speed. It just happened when she pulled into Subway. And then just a few days later, the rear end falls out of the Suburban. I don't know why the rear end fell out of the Suburban. I wasn't climbing anything spectacular or doing things stupid, but it just happened. It was like, well, okay, well, what, what, what can go next? I mean, is something going to happen to the church van? That was last week. The alternator fell out, so it's like, What's going on here? Is there, some kind of, is there some kind of curse or some kind of hex or some kind of... Anybody ever felt like that? Like when it rains, it pours, and it rains, and it pours, and it rains, and it pours. And I know most of you were dealing with snow. You got all the snow and ice, and the, the snow and ice came back. I understand that Friday before 9 o'clock in the morning, there were over 50 broken bones at Cleveland Hospital, not from car wrecks, but from people walking out of their car, slipping and falling down, and breaking a bone. And aren't you glad that none of us here have broken bones? God spared us. God saved us. The snow is gone. And they're saying that another snow is coming. I don't know whether it's coming or not. I didn't get a chance to build a snowman, so I wouldn't mind another three or four inches for a day or two. Can anybody relate? Just know that we can manipulate, and then when it's done, it's done. Someone say amen. So God, God is not intimidated by the giants that come against us, but the two giants I want to talk about this morning is the giant within a man by the name of Jacob, and a giant before a man by the name of David. This morning, giants that are in us, that overwhelm us, that frustrate us, that are there that we can identify with, or giants that are trying to come against us to hurt and hinder our future, hurt and hinder our favor, hurt and hinder all that God has for us. Do I have a friend in the house that can relate to either one of those giants? When I, when I think of the story of Jacob, I think about a kid that from conception was frustrated. The Bible tells us that Jacob was the younger of twins. Esau was the firstborn. Esau means red hair. Esau had red hair on his head, on his arms, on his leg. Hairy little creature. And the word says that when he came out of the womb, Jacob had his, his wrist holding on to Esau's ankle, trying to pull him back into the womb and be the firstborn. I, I mean, you, you explained that when, when uh, Rachel, when, I'm sorry, when Rebecca was pregnant, there was great things going on in her, in her belly, in her pregnancy. Of course, she had never had children before, so she didn't really know what was going on. So she went to God. 
And she said, God, what, what are all these things I'm going, before, going through? Why, is, why are these pains? Why is this frustration? And God told her, there are two nations in your womb at war. And you know what? Things have not changed. There are still two nations today in our womb that, that, that means war, where the enemy is trying to disqualify us, and then there's something trying to bless us. We're constantly warring day and night to do the right thing. The Apostle Paul said it so well in Romans 7, the thing that I would do, I don't do. The thing that I don't do, I would do. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. How frustrated he was. But he said, thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got good news today. The giant on the inside of you, we have the ability to confront him, to deal with him, to expose him, and to destroy him. Very quickly, looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob, as a teenager, conspired with his mom to trick his dad. Isaac is on his deathbed. Jacob is... Obviously, an heir, a patriarch, a son, or a grandson of a patriarch. God called Abraham, then God called Isaac, then out of, out of Rebekah's womb, two children came. We know that Esau pursued the things of the world. Jacob later is going to pursue the things of God. But here's Jacob. He's tricking his dad. His dad's dying. The death gurgle is almost there. And he, and he prepares a kid. He takes it to his dad, and he tells his dad that it's Esau, the firstborn, because he wanted the spoke, spoken blessing of the generational blessing. There was favor being the firstborn. The joy being the firstborn is that when dad died, you got a double portion because it was your responsibility to take over the affairs and take care of mom until mom died. The double portion was to enable you to do things that you normally could not have done with a single portion. So Jacob was jealous for that double portion, wanted that double portion, and actually took goat hair and tied it to his arms and went in and fooled his dad. And his dad's partially blind. He's dying. He said, you don't smell like Esau. You don't, you don't sound like Esau. And Jacob said, look, Dad, fill, fill my arms. And he had the goat hair, and, the, and, and Jacob and, and uh, Isaac was convinced this is my oldest. So Isaac gives Jacob a blessing. And from that day forward, Esau resented it. The favor of God that God had for Esau, Esau completely abandoned, turned his back on the things of God, began to prepare to be a, a mighty hunter, then he began to hunt men. We'll watch the generation of Esau a little later. Here's Jacob, leaves in the middle of the night because Esau is going to kill him, goes to work for his uncle and gets cheated seven times in his wages because what you reap, what you sow, is what you're going to reap. So what happens with Jacob? He falls in love. Look at somebody and say, he falls in love. Uh, Laban had two, two daughters. One was Leah, one was Rachel. And Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Uh, Leah was a great girl. Nothing wrong with her. She may have been cross-eyed. The Bible refers to something about her vision. I don't know if he knew that or not. But for some reason, Jacob loved Rachel. And so Laban said, hey, I heard you, you want to marry my daughter. I'll tell you what. You work seven years for my daughter. You can have her hand in marriage. I'm getting ready this week to do some premarital counseling with the couple that's, that's been living together, and they have children together, and now they decided that they're going to, to get married and all the things that's going to go on with that. And I'm, think, I'm thinking just, I mean, just, just a possibility. Wouldn't it be better if you got counsel before you moved in together? I mean, would that not just be like a good, a good, good look at someone say, that, that might be a good idea, that might be a good thing. So anyway, would it also be something to have a, a fiancé that loves you so much that he would work seven years before he could hold your hand or kiss you goodnight. Come on, 
Let's talk about true romance. I mean, if marriage was now what it was then, maybe the weddings would still last and be 120 years like the Old Testament marriages were. Can you imagine being married to the same woman for 120 years? Yesterday, my mom turned 82, and they, I think they just celebrated 64 years. They've been married more than they've been single. I mean, I mean how cool is that? What, what a goal. But Jacob said, I want Rachel. I'll work for her, work the seven years. The day after the wedding, look at somebody say the day after the wedding, he realized he got tricked, and he got Leah. That's problematic to me. I don't know how he spent the night with his bride, did not realize that it was, it was Leah. We, maybe too much wine, maybe just way too much stress or too much pressure on him. And Laban plays dumb, says, oh, you wanted Rachel. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you'll have to work for her seven more years. So, so Jacob has got 14 years invested in his wife. I know some guys, they don't even invest $14 in their date. Come on now. I mean, thank God for guys that's not afraid to pay the price to marry the girl they feel like that God wants them to have. Leah Precious gives him 10 precious children. Rachel only gives him two. And, one, and when she gives birth to Benjamin, she, die, she dies in childbirth. But what has happened? Jacob gets a word. Jacob gets a word that Esau is coming to where he's at with an army of 300 men. Jacob freaks out. Jacob sends uh, all of Leah's family first. He keeps Rachel's family with him. Then he sends all of Rachel's family towards to meet Esau. And then in Genesis 32 and 24, it makes a statement. And then Jacob was left alone. It will be impossible to deal with the giants in your life until you come to a place where you realize that you are a mess. Jacob realized, I have lied, I have cheated, I have deceived, I'm a trickster, I'm a supplanter. I mean, everything, everything, everything about me, I don't like. So Jacob removes everything from his life, all of his kids, all of his, all, all of his family, and he finds himself alone. And when you find yourself alone, you'll realize you're not really alone, but God is with you. Because you never took the time to get yourself alone and never had that opportunity to have your own private altar, your own private confrontation, your own consolation with God. You never really knew how close he was. But all of a sudden, here he is. He knows his brother's going to kill him. He knows his brother's mad. And he knows that he has, he has been honored by the blessing. He has thousands of cattle. He has thousands of sheep. Very, very wealthy men. But watch this. All the money in the world that he has cannot protect him from his brother that's coming to kill him. He's all alone. The Bible says that a man showed up. It's a capital N. It's the angel of the Lord. It was probably the pre-existent Jesus Christ comes and Jacob grabs a hold of him and they begin to wrestle. Aren't you glad that you can be spiritual enough to know when God comes that it's time for just you and, you and God to get alone and have it out? You're not going to offend God. You're not going to freak God out if you get him sequestered somewhere and say, God, I got some real challenges. I got some real problems. I got some real frustrations. But Jacob realized that he was a mess. And to realize that he was a mess, he had to realize for me to change or even have a future at all, I'm going to have to get right with first myself and then with God. But Maga, what is so to me interesting of this story is that Jacob makes the statement, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. The whole generation of Jacob was all about him. 
He wanted to be blessed going in. He wanted to be blessed going out. He wanted to be this. He wanted to be that. Bless me, bless me, bless me. And I think a lot of times the challenge with the charismatic church, we want all, all, all sugar and no, and no salt. We want all blessing and no trouble. We want all the good that God's got, but we don't want to be honed that, 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 that iron that, that sharpens iron or that gold that's made to the stirring. We don't want to go through that process. We just want to be able to declare blessings and favor and goodness. Oh, I'm blessed. God's good, all of this. And you know what? God is good. We are blessed. But there are seasons when we find ourselves in a place where the giant within us is keeping us from receiving what God has for us. Do I have a friend in the building? And so, and so Jacob's got a hold, and he, he knows he's got a hold of God, and he's, got a, he's not letting him go. And we know that the angel reached over and just simply touched uh, Jacob on the thigh, and, and immediately his hip was knocked out of socket. For the rest of his life, he had a limp that, in, that encountered that meeting with God. So what God was saying at any time, Jacob, you're not, you're not holding me down. You're not holding me back. You're not, you're not confining me. I can walk away from this conversation anytime I want. I can walk away from this wrestling match anytime I want. But Jacob, you've got to show me that you're really serious about hearing what I have to say and being what I want you to be. You've got to go through this process. And then the million-dollar question. This angel, which I believe was Jesus Christ before the, before the womb, asked this question. What is your name? What is your name? And Jacob says, my name is... Jacob, or Jacob. He was saying, my name is cheater. My name is thief. My name is liar. My name is trickster. And when he confessed to God who he was and what he become, something changed in his spirit. That moment with being honest, that moment not blaming anybody else for your trouble, not blaming anything else for your trouble, but realize I am where I'm at because of the decisions that I have made. I am where I'm at because of the confessions that I have made. I am where I'm at because I chose the company I was going to hang out with. I am where I am because I, I married this one or divorced this one or aborted this one or birthed this one. It's me. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. There's no one to point fingers at. It's all about me. I'm getting ready to celebrate. Matter of fact, February 1st, I celebrated 35 years of, of being born again and being clean. Um, Easter Sunday, I'll celebrate 34 years of full-time ministry. And the 34 years of full-time ministry, some things that I have observed is that rarely we change by ourselves. It is, it is rare that I, I will see somebody and they'll make a statement, make a definition, and continue to walk in it. Rarely do we never change until there is a God encounter. And what God does not do, he does not take you that are bad and make you a little better. He didn't take you or broken and reassemble you. But what God does when you come to God and you realize who he is and what he wants to be in your life, you go from black to white. You go not not racially, I'm saying, but the blackness that we represent. Are you with me, everybody good there? We go from bad to good. We go from horrible to wonderful. We go from cheater. Jacob went from cheater to prince because when he said, my name is Jacob, and he said, I am, my name is liar, my name is deceiver, God said, no more. 
From this day forward, your name will be Israel, which means prince of God. So he went from, he went from loser, liar, cheater, manipulator to prince. What a trade. What an exchange. And aren't you glad that when you come to God, there is a new name written down in glory. When you go through that transition of salvation, sanctification, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if, uh, how many can relate, but when I was a child growing up, we would have every once in a while, just depending on how well Dad had prepared for the sermon, if Dad was real prepared, we didn't have testimony service, but if Dad just had a few things to share, we'd have a testimony service. And I, I mean, 9, 9.999 times out of 10, someone would stand and say, I thank God that I'm saved, sanctified, and filled with heaven's sweet Holy Ghost. And I don't know, can anybody relate to that terminology? Saved, sanctified, and filled with heaven's sweet Holy Ghost. And I got to looking at that, I got to looking at that term, sanctified. That God does not leave us the way that he found us. He said, I found you in your own blood. I found you, you were naked, you were lonely, you were desolate. But when you were asleep and you could do nothing to help yourself, I picked you up. I banished the wounds. I covered you. I blessed you going in. I blessed you going out. He never leaves us the way that he finds us if we're willing to admit our mistakes, our fears, our failures, and the giants on the inside that is distracting us. Can anybody relate? I wrote here, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are in the process of becoming new. I also wrote down, to confront the giants on the inside, we need Christ to help us change. We are not going to change on our own. We, we can get a list of New Year's resolutions. My, my New Year, Year's resolution this year was not to have a New Year's resolution. That was my resolution because it seemed like every time I plan, well, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Then we get into like the second week of February. I haven't done anything, the things I said I was going to do in January, and I'm just depressed. I throw my list in the trash. Can anybody relate to the statements that we get all excited to make statements and then we don't follow up on, on them? And again, I don't believe that we're going to change on our own. I believe we need the help of God. When, when God turns us around, he deals not just with sin, but he deals with iniquity. The word iniquity doesn't necessarily mean sin. It means a thought process that we operate in. The word iniquity in the Hebrew is almost the same, same word in, for the womb. You know how the womb is bent. In iniquity, we are bent to go back to the way we've always done it. Can anybody relate? But David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like an eagle. Good things happen. I said, good things happen when you deal with the iniquity, iniquity syndrome in your life and you begin to follow after the commandments, the commitments of Christ. Good things happen. All your iniquities are forgiven, not just 90 percent. All your all your mistakes are, are, are forgiven. And God says, I'll even heal the broken areas of your life and bring restoration. You must have heard this sermon already and got excited with somebody else shouting. And I, I wrote a, I wrote this question down here and I'm not really sure I wanted to ask it, but. What is your iniquity? We sang several years ago, and I'm sure it's still around now, but we sang a song that says, I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. I don't know if David Binion wrote that or who wrote that, but I remember them singing that at Daystar. 
But we, we make the statement that I'm desperate for you. And I remember some of my experiences at the altar. Uh, the altar was not an unfamiliar place in my life. I was raised in church. And uh, every, every year we had a youth camp. And every year I would go to youth camp. And I would get saved. And God would use me. God would bless me. And then we would have a, a, uh, a conference with all the pastors, which they called the General Assembly. I would get saved at youth camp. Then I would go to the General Assembly and hang around other preachers' kids and backslide. I know none of you can relate. I, I know you're, you're way too pure and holy to, to admit those things. But it was like I, I wanted to, there was something in me that wanted to serve God, but I also wanted to be popular with my peers, and I wanted to do the stuff that, that they were doing. And I remember one day Randy Hill and I, Randy's dad pastored one of the churches in California. My dad pastored a church there for several years, and Randy and I found a cigar. We didn't know how to smoke it. I had no clue. I didn't know how to like the thing, but we had it, and we got it on fire somehow. And then, and then of course, I went, I went back to the motel, and, and, of course, my parents said, what, what's that smell? What smell? I don't know what smell. I got, the, I got the whipping of my life and realized that cigar was not worth the pain that I went through to smoke the cigar. But there's all, there's, there seemed to be something inside of us that always wants to fit in. We always want to go with the flow. We don't want to be, you know, isolated. We don't be looked at, 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 at as a weirdo. But something happens when you go to an altar with the attitude of, I'm not leaving here until you change me. I'm not leaving here until you change me. I can take you to the place in Southern California. I can take you to the, 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 the place where I actually, within inches, I believe I can show you where I gave my heart to God. Then I can take the place where within just inches I can show you where God filled me with the Holy Spirit. And then I can take you to the sanctuary. I can show you the pew. And I can show you the place in the altar where I said yes to the call of God. I remember those altar experiences because every time you go to the altar in seriousness, God's going to honor you and meet you there and bring some changes about in your life that you desperately need. But I think the main thing of it is that when you go to the altar, you realize you're not just going there to get stuff. Part of my ministry eight years was traveling the charismatic churches of the, of the nation. And one thing I learned, and I've had, I've had pastors tell me, my congregation enjoys word of knowledge. They enjoy word of wisdom. They enjoy prophecy, and they enjoy this, and they enjoy that. And then the, the door opened for me to go speak at a church that... Um, one of the number one healing ministries in the world, pastored that church, and he was with uh, Kenneth Copeland preaching, so they flew me in to preach for him that Sunday. And this is a church that's had this healing evangelist, been their pastor for 10 years, but when I gave an altar call, everyone, everyone, the whole church, everyone in the, everyone in the church came forward, and they lined up from one end of the building to the other end, two or 300 people, and so I just started one by one, calling them out, prophesying over them, laying them down. If they didn't fall, I put my leg behind and pushed them over. So they, and we had people to cover up with all the little napkin things. And, you know, it's one, of those, it's one of those experiences where you realize is that if you only go to the altar to get something for yourself, you're going to get stuck in a rut. But if you go to the altar saying, I am not leaving here until something on the inside of me changes. I am not leaving here until God does away with this junk in my life. I'm not leaving here. And as I, as I begin to pray and seek God preparation for ministry, there were times uh, when about three or four of us would go to, you guys don't remember Bob's Big Boy, but we in California, we used to have a Bob's Big Boy, and there'd be a little guy outside had a hamburger, and I think there was a Shoney's, and there was a, some other different things, but we would go to Bob's Big Boy about 7 or 8 o'clock Saturday night, 
and we would drink like 20 or 30 cups of coffee. Then we would go to the church, and we'd turn on all the lights, we'd turn on all the music, and we would pray all night long. We would literally pray all night long, literally. I mean, we would, people Sunday morning would start coming in for the morning worship, and we were there praying all night long. But most of my prayer all night long was stuff for me. I wanted my marriage restored. I wanted my health restored. I wanted my business restored. I wanted, I want, I had a list. I had a list that I would lay before the Lord and I would pray and I would seek God. But the moment God turned the door around and, and opened the door for me to start speaking into the youth group and spending Sunday afternoons with them and I started praying for them and started seeing things happen in their life, it seemed like the more I saw God do in the life of others, the more that God did in my life. Can anybody relate? And I'm pleased to tell you that there's room at the cross for you. If you'll address on the inside what you're going through, what you're frustrated with, you can make a list if you want. You can, you can put it on your iPhone. You can put it on your wherever it's handy. And every time you look at it, you say, I am not leaving this moment until God does this in my life. Not to better me, but to better the kingdom. That's good teaching. If I could come there and shout for myself, we're in trouble. That was the Goliath. That, that was the giant within. That's what Jacob had to come to grips with. On the outside looking in, it's like, Jacob, you are a multimillionaire. Jacob, you got two wives, four girlfriends, 30-some-odd kids. I mean, you're blessed. You are wealthy. But Jacob and all the stuff that he acquired knew that in the seed of that stuff he acquired, he got it illegally. He got it wrongly. So every time he got blessed, there was a, a bad, like an indigestion. It was like... You know, the, the servants would come and say, hey, you got 150,000 sheep. You know, he would hear that, and there was a bad taste in his mouth because he knew he had cheated his brother and deceived his father to get that seed. So Jacob had to come to a place in life where he realized there's stuff on the inside of me that's got to go. And when he confessed who he was and what he had done, God immediately turned that repentance into revival, and, and Jake, Jacob marked that place. Favor with his brother, favor with the family. You know the story. And God blessed him until the day of his death and blessed his sons. That's the giant on the inside. The giant on the, on the outside, and I'll, I'll be very, very careful not to exploit this story. If you go with me, you're already at 1 Samuel 16. If you'll just turn the page over to 1 Samuel 17. Major point, David Lear, I'd like to make right here in this story. In the 16th chapter... David is anointed to be what God wants him to be. The Bible says from that day forward, the spirit was with him everywhere he went. God anointed in the 16th chapter came under attack in the 17th chapter. If you're going through a giant phase in your life right now, if there's some giants in your life that you've confronted and you've shook your fist and you proclaim victory and glory, you must be doing something right. There must be an anointing. There must be a purpose. There must be something God has for you. He would not have anointed you and then put you into battle if he didn't feel like you could win the battle. You know the story. The Philistines were from the island of Crete. They were warriors. They were pirates. They were godless. There was something about the Gaza Strip. How ironic, 3,000 years later, we're still fighting over the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip, there's a, there's a ridge of mountains to the north. There's a ridge of mountains to the south. The Mediterranean Sea is here. 
And there's a little valley about 30 miles wide that, watch this, connects the world. When you travel from Europe to Africa, that little window right there is the door that allows you to touch the world. And the Philistines wanted that particular piece of land. So the Philistines had their, had their armies facing the north. Saul had his armies facing the south. For weeks they had stood there confronting one another, uh, boasting of, of, of how great they were, how wonderful they were. And the reason they had not yet gone to battle, because if you went to battle with the wrong timing or the wrong foot first, it meant that you could be, you could be destroyed. You've got to realize in those days there was no air cover. There were no planes dropping bombs. When you got out there in that flat away from the mountains, you were exposed, and you could get hurt if you got exposed too long. Am I helping anybody? David is the baby of the family. Many believe that David possibly could have been an illegitimate child because when, when, Saul, when, when Samuel asked for Jesse to bring his sons, he didn't bring David. We don't know about it, but I'm, I'm telling you, God can use anybody if they're willing to allow God to use them. So the, the, they're all at war. Everybody's, everybody's war, and the two armies are confronting one another. The only time you'll find the word champion in the Bible is in relationship to Goliath. Goliath was their champion. He was nine foot tall. I have been told by anthropologists that 3,000 years ago, the average height of a human was 5'6". We are growing. I don't know what it is that we're growing, but we are literally eating better, whatever we're doing. We're taller than we used to be. But in that generation, David was probably 5'5", 5'6". Goliath was almost twice his size. Not only was Goliath 9 foot tall, he had four brothers. One brother was uglier, meaner, badder than him. He had six fingers, six toes on both feet, both hands. He was, he was weird, and he was ugly, and he was freaky. And this Goliath had intimidated the army of God. David was told by dad, hey, take some cheese, take some bread, take it to your brothers. When he got to the battle, he goes to greet his brothers, goes to greet, greet his family. And then he sees this Goliath shouting out these curses, cursing God, cursing the army of Israel, running his mouth. And David gets an attitude. And David said, what in the world is going on here? What's taking place? They said, well, this uncircumcised Philistine, uncircumcised because he had no covenant with God. This uncircumcised Philistine is running down the people of God, the things of God, the armies of God. And David said, what, what's going on here? And he said, let me ask you a question. What does the man that takes out this giant, what does he get? I love that. Because David realized that there was some kind of spoil or there's some kind of blessing to doing what God called him to do and to be what God called him to be, that there was a reward. People get real funny when you start talking about pro promotion financially or promotion spiritually or promotion. We serve a God of promotion. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. All of heaven's promotion. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you came to see me. Everything about growing in the Lord, maturity in the Lord, is about promotion. And David just asked the question that everybody else already knew the answer. Oh, David, if you take out this Goliath, first of all, all of your family, your dad, your mom, and all your brothers are tax-exempt for the rest of their life. You get a great big pile of gold and silver, and you get to marry the king's daughter. He said, that's, that's what I get if I take this guy out? And he said, yeah, David said, I'm in. I'm in. 
I'm going to do it. I'm, 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 I'm going to take on this giant. And remember the oldest son that Samuel looked at and God said, don't look on the outside, shows his true character and said, David, you're, you're, you're a punk. You're a, little, you're a little shepherd boy. You're a little punk. You're not old enough to fight and you come to battle and you run your mouth and you do this and, and you do that. And David re- responds like, what have I done now? Which kind of inflects it. May, he may have been an illegitimate son earlier in life. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Well, yeah, we're fighting over the world, the doorway into the world. We're fighting over the Gaza Strip. We're fighting over a piece of ground that God told Abraham he could have. This was an important battle. This was an important time in the history of Israel. And David said, I will, I'll, take on, I'll take on that giant. Well, Saul, who knew who David was from the earlier chapter, David had played his music, played his harp, had been in Saul's life. Saul plays dumb and says, who's that guy? We don't know who he is, but he said that he will take on Goliath. So Saul sends for him, and Saul says, okay, here's my armor. Let me tell you about the battle in that day. There were, there were three types of, of approach to the enemy. The approach number one was the archers and the javelin throwers. At a distance, they would release their arrows. I don't know if you've seen any old-time battles, and, the, and it would literally rain thousands of arrows and would take up part of the charging force. And then there was the cavalry, where you got on a horse or you got on a camel and you went, on, went to battle and tried to slay. And then there was the infantry. There was just the, there was just the soldiers that, that marched. And then a part of the infantry, what was called the slingers. And the Bible says from the house of Benjamin, there were 700 slingers that were left-handed. And when these slingers went to battle, again, they could split a rock at 35 yards, which is an important distance. But because at 35 yards, that sword can't touch you, that spear is too heavy to throw, and the javelin's not used correctly, you can avoid all of that. So there was something about being a slinger that was advantageous to that battle. And so what Saul did, Saul, who is head and shoulders over everybody else, he's the biggest guy in the camp, he should have been the one that took on Goliath, but he's hiding behind his, his crown, hiding behind his throne, so he puts all of David's, all of his armor on David. And David said, man, I can't, this is, this is I'm not proved this. Anybody know what the word prove means? Uh, this, this season, as Angel and I went to prepare to harvest a deer, uh, I thought it was important that Angel shot his bow or shot his muzzleloader or shot his, shot his weapon before we went on hunting. That way, he would pretty much know what, where the bullet was going to go and what the bullet was going to do. David said, this armor's not proved. I've not worn this to battle. I don't know if this is going to work, but let me tell you what I do know. I was obeying my dad, taking care of the sheep, and a lion roared against the flock and stole one of my dad's lambs. And I took my sling, and I slew that lion, and then a bear roared against one of dad's lambs, and I destroyed that bear. So I've got on my barn, I've got the skin of a bear, the skin of a lion, and on the mantelpiece there at the house where the fireplace is at, there's the head of a lion, there's the head of a bear. My God, help me take on the lion. My God, help me take on the bear. This giant is a punk. What an attitude. But when you begin to reflect in your life what you've overcome, when you begin to reflect what you've won, what battles you've, you've been a part of and you came out victorious, That's what qualifies you to take back what the enemy has stolen. The fact that I killed a lion, I killed a bear. No other guy in that army could say that. No other guy had taken on a bear or a lion. I'm going to tell you what, I've I've seen bear in the wild. I've not seen lion in the wild, but I've seen the lions of of Africa. I would much rather take on some ugly-looking nine-foot basketball player, hello, 
than, than a lion or a bear. Do I get a witness in this, in this play? David knew what he could do with what God gave him. Here's David's attitude. If it worked then, it will work now. And that same deliverance, that same victory that God gave you when you overcame the circumstances of your life, that's still there, that anointing is still there. He anointed you to go to battle to take back what the enemy has stolen from you. A giant present means your position to take back what was yours. In our life, things have been stolen from us. Maybe our virginity, maybe being a new mom, young mom, young dad, maybe a divorce, maybe an abortion, maybe a drug addiction. But there are chapters in our life that I believe God wants to rewrite. He is the God of restoration. And he wants to return what the enemy has stolen, sevenfold, thirtyfold, a hundredfold. He wants to give back to you what belonged to you before you hit a bump in the road. Does that help anybody in the building? So what happens? Goliath, nine foot tall, the Bible says he's got this bronze mail, M-A-I-L, this metal that protects him from the shoulders to the, to the wrists, from the ankles to the thighs. He got on, he got on armor here. He got armor on top. He's got armor on his feet. And right, right above, right where, where his brow line is, there's this little hole. And that, that allows the, the armor to go so that he can see correctly one little spot. And, as, and some things that, that we learn about this giant as you begin to read, uh, what, how did I say that word, Pastor Rhonda? Pitu, pituitary gland? Uh, as, you, as you look at the, at the life of Goliath, and you look real close, Goliath was not as bad or as evil as he first appeared to be. I remember uh, several years ago, Pastor Rhonda and I and Keith Dudley, we went to Tulsa, and there we spent some time with the Word of, the Word of Faith camp, and uh, a great conference, great speakers, and uh, one of the speakers of that conference was uh, Kenneth Copeland. And I remember uh, Keith and Pastor Rhonda and I getting on an elevator, and Kenneth Copeland was on the elevator, and, of course, you know me. I've, I've always had a mouth. I've always said whatever I thought. And so I introduced myself to Kenneth Clope, and I said, you know what? You're a lot smaller than you look on TV. And he is. He's not, he's not very tall. He's about five foot six. But I said something nice to accompany that. And, but, but, but the point that I was making is that what, what Goliath tried to prepare what he was, he wasn't that at all. He had a birth defect. Do you remember Andre the Giant? Died prematurely. Just a few weeks ago, the tallest man on earth, 8 foot, 11 inches, died at a young age because of that disease. And that disease affected your sight. When, when, when Goliath got ready to confront David, he said, come nigh to me. He said, why do you have sticks? Well, David didn't have a stick. He had a staff. That's how, he had a staff in one hand, had the sling in the other. But this, this giant, his, his vision is impaired. He's got to have somebody carry his weapons with him, and he wants to get you right up in his face. And David said, I'm not going to get right up in your face. I'm going to take you out at 35 yards, and I'm going to do it. And, and, and the very thing that Goliath said that he would do to David, I will feed your head to the fowls of the air. I'll feed your carcass to the wild beasts of the earth. David said, 
you come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. This day I will take thine head from thee. I will give thy carcass to the earth, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Then David hastened and ran towards Goliath. And, he, and as he ran, he got that stone. That, I like to call it the stone that never misses, the stone the builder rejected, the power of the blood of Jesus could overwhelm any giant in your life. He ran towards that giant planted that stone, and then did something that every one of us have failed to do. We've knocked our giant down, but we haven't cut his head off. We've knocked our giant down, and we're excited about that. We get caught up in the moment, caught in excitement. But David knew when he knocked the lion down, if he had let the lion wake up, the lion would have beaten him. When he knocked the bear down, if he let that bear wake up, the bear, that's experience of battle. That's experience why the song says, don't look for me to be in the place I used to be. There's been a change in me. I found a better way. And since I found the church and found a place to pray, there's been a change in me. I found a better way. You don't go to the same hangouts. You don't go to the same haunts. You don't hang with the same people. You don't watch the same movie. You don't listen to the same music. There's a change in your life. You go to that enemy that has fallen. You take what he intended for evil against you. You take his weapon. You cut his head off, and it's a done deal. And somebody should be excited about that. Always know that when you defeat one giant, there's going to be another that's easily, quickly going to pop up. Goliath had four brothers. I've heard all kinds of sermons, and I've preached them, why David selected five smooth stones. But if you'll read a little later in 2 Samuel, when David was made king, he went to the land of giants and annihilated them. So David knew, if I'm going to take on Goliath, then I'm going to take on the whole family. And when you start operating in restoration and healing, and let me, just, let, me just, let me just make it plain for me. When I cut off the head of drug abuse, I then encountered the giant of poor physical health. I was trashing my body with needles and, 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 and straws and and all, I was trashing my body. I was, I was unhealthy. I was, I was sickly. I weighed 119 pounds. Couldn't even carry my own, couldn't even bench press my own weight. That's how, that's how messed up I was. So then I took care of that giant. And then when I got my health back, I realized that financially I was head over heels in debt. So then I took on that giant. And then when I took on that giant, I got to a place where I started working out and lifting weights and felt good about that. And found myself in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gym in the area where I was able to witness to guys and lead kids to the Lord. But then when I took on that giant of salvation, then it forced me to live a better life. To make better decisions. My, my communication started changing. The people I hung around with started changing because people began to see me as someone who could touch God. And I had to act like it. It just goes with, that's what being sanctified is all about. Saved, sanctified, and then, then I started the process. So then when I went into the process of my health, my finances, then I had to deal with the giant of reputation. Because everybody knew me as a drug addict. Everybody knew being divorced, everything. So when you take on one giant, know that not only is another giant. Let me, let me be a little. Uh, most of you know I spend a lot of my time with people that are either on probation 
or in a season where they're, they're desperately trying to get clean. And so when they confront, confront that giant of addiction and they get clean, nine times out of ten, what is waiting for them now is probation fines, back child support, all of that. And then they take on that giant. And then once they get that giant taken care of, they have a felony. They can't get a good job because, because our society speaks one thing and does another. And, and they can't get a good job, so then they got to take on that giant of finances. And then when they take on that job, then they realize they've got kids out there somewhere that they've abandoned, not seen or cared for. Then they take on that giant. You see what I'm saying? God, God will anoint you for the battle you're about to fight, and God will give you the weapons of your warfare to take on your giants one at a time. Caleb said, 40 years ago, I said, give me this mountain. I've been distracted for 40 years, but I feel as good today as I felt 40 years ago. And if you research Caleb's mountain, there were giants on Caleb's mountain. He didn't care because he knew that greater was he that was in him than he was in the, in the world. How powerful and incredible is that? So two things I'll, I'll leave with you on these, on these giants. When you step into a season of confession and repentance... You summon the grace of God. When you step into a season, of, when, the, when the prodigal son said, I'm, 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 I've done this, I've done that, I'm going home, that, that, that state of humility, I'm going back not as a son but as a servant. When he went back, he not just restored as a son, but the, but the, the restoration was renewed. Can anybody relate? So your confession to humble yourself and declare it's not, it's not where I was born. It's not my family. It's not my husband. It's not my ex-wife. It's not this job. It's not that. It's me. I made those decisions. I stepped in that area. I need to be accountable. I need to be responsible. And when you confess your sins and you humble yourself, God always shows up in grace. So confession summons grace. Strong vows summon grace. When you're at a place where you're, you're, you're healed, you're restored, you're getting to do what God's called you to do. One of the most dangerous things is to say, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I am, everything I'm not. Because when you make yourself available to God, there's such a shortage right now of labors in the kingdom that God's going to use you. And when you begin to declare who you are in Christ, what you're going to do in Christ, what you have done in Christ, let your testimony bless you and represent you, that, that confession, that relationship with God summons God's grace again. Does that excite anybody in this building I quoted that already. Last point I want to make, and you probably can't, you can't, you probably can't make this point enough. And I'll be very careful that I don't bore you with testimonies of the past. But for the past 20, 23 years, there have been people. The Bible says there's wisdom in the safety of counsel. There's connection in the power of counsel. Two or three in agreement in counsel. But in the past several, probably 20, 24 years, I think, March 1st, we celebrate 24 years of full-time church. Is that right? Or 25? 24 years, Debbie? March 1st? Uh, in, in the past 24 years, in, in, in my counsel and my ministering to people, one of the hardest things has been for me to, to digest and, and, and deal with is that when people come for counseling and share where they're at and why they're there, then counsel is given to repent and not go back there. If there are friends in your life that every time you go around them, they rest not trying to get you high or get you laid or get you stoned, 
wisdom would be, don't go back there. Shut that door. Slam that door shut. Walk away from that and find another entrance for God's glory and God's purpose and God's favor in your life. Take on your giants one at a time. Don't be overwhelmed by all the things you've got to do before the Lord comes. Don't be overwhelmed by all the debt you've collected. Don't be overwhelmed by, by all of the reputation that you have. Take it on one at a time. Ask God to show you what he wants you to take on first, and God will give you the strength and the ability, not just for a great victory, not just for a great victory, but to go and cut the head off your Goliath. And I, 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 I conclude with this. The blessing that Isaac had for Esau wasn't all that great. But God had promised Jacob through Abraham's loins that Jacob would get Abraham's blessing, which was phenomenal. Every place you put your foot is yours. As far as east is from the west, you're going to own everything. And that's exactly what God did through Jacob. Here's the point I want to make. The king's daughter family exempt from taxes, a pile of gold, was nothing compared to the promotion that God had for David. God had already selected David to be the king of the world. God had already instructed David to build a sanctuary, a place of worship, a place of praise. God already had a beautiful wife by the name of Abigail prepared for David. So when David began to hear what the world had to offer for him to pursue the things of God, they weren't all that great compared to what God had to offer him when he walked in willingness and obedience and did what God called him to do. He's out defending Saul's enemies while Saul's trying to kill him. And it's, it's going to be like that. There's such a jealousy in the kingdom of God. When you start doing good, start getting blessed, find people that start being negative or critical. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're part of this picture. You're one of the reasons why I'm healthy. You're one of the reasons why I'm restored. You're one of the reasons why I decided to serve God. It's, it's funny how people get. But you know what? Shut that door and go into another one. Cut the head off of that snake and go into another one. Am I making sense to anybody in the building? As every head is bowed, as every eye is closed. Lord, today we recognize that there are giants on the inside of us. Giants of criticism, giants of jealousy. Giants of anger, giants of depression, giants of financial frustration. We also realize that you have given us power over all the attack of the enemy. And nothing is impossible in your name. So, Lord, we choose to move our giants from the inside of us to the front of us. And like David, we will use the weapons you have given us, the boldness. And what the enemy speaks against us will be completely reversed. The curse will be reversed, and we walk in your favor, your blessing, and your honor. So today, as this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, we make our own altar, and we grab a hold of our own angel, and we make the commitment not to leave until we are changed. Let that process begin. Let us this evening, some of us, make no plans to watch TV, no plans to go anywhere, but just get themselves alone somewhere in a room where God's at, allow no distractions, say, Lord, I'm not coming out of this room until you tell me what I need to know, until you give me what I need to get, until you remove from me those things that are distracting me, that are disqualifying me, in Jesus' name. In Can we give the Lord a hand clap of appreciation for all?